I'm Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. This podcast is made in collaboration with The Jewish Journal. Most American or European high school students know about the American Civil War, the Holocaust, or even the French Revolution. Most don't know about the 30 years of civil war that ravaged the Horn of Africa in the latter part of the last century. Conflicts that together claimed the lives of over a million Africans. Much of these conflicts were interwar within Ethiopia, but the greater conflict extended beyond. In 1991, finally, peace came to the region. And thanks, much thanks, to the ad hoc peace committee founded by Professor Ephraim Isaac. Professor Isaac's accomplishments are too numerous to list and his life story too great to paraphrase. But suffice it to say that he was the first African studies professor in the United States at Harvard University, and he had the privilege of meeting Martin Luther King Jr. So without further ado, we are thrilled to be joined by Professor Ephraim Isaac. Thank Hello. you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Eitan. Thank you very much, Naor. So let's start way back when you arrived in the beginning uh, of the 1960s to the United States of America. What brought you there? Yes, thank you very much. Uh, I actually came in 1958 and then I studied some music uh, and then I went back to Ethiopia for a year and I, uh, uh, after that, went to Harvard University to uh, the Divinity School where I received my first Harvard degree, Bachelor of uh, Religion, Divinity. Mm -hmm. And then I continued at Harvard in the field of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations. And I received my uh, doctorate in 1969. And then thereafter became a professor there. I see. But uh, how so I came to the U.S. primarily to study. I had a scholarship. How? How does a <laughs> Jewish Ethiopian kid ends up, end up in America in Harvard? How does that happen? Well... Baruch Hashem, <laughs> I uh, was at the Haile Selassie Secondary School, and I was number one when I graduated. And in those days, uh, students who succeed in their high school uh, get scholarships to go to Europe, to America. And in my case, I ended up in the United States. In those days, in the early 60s, uh, well, actually beginning in 59 when I became the president of the Ethiopian Students Association in North America, there were something like 250 Ethiopian students in the United States, maybe including Canada, about 300. We are talking now uh, about a million Ethiopians today in the United States. How did it feel for you to, to not leave Ethiopia, but to go out from Ethiopia to America Probably you, for the first time for, that you left. Did you have fears? Uh, naturally, of course. There was an ambivalent situation. I wanted to study. I always wanted to get more knowledge. And we all knew, of course, about universities in Europe, in America. And we were all young people, very anxious at the same time. Of course, leaving your family, your hometown, your country, and going to another country for a long time is very apprehensive. And what was the situation in Ethiopia when you left? Because you must have been leaving also. I mean, it was a pretty tense time. No, actually, when I left, uh, Ethiopia had an emperor, 
Haile Selassie. Haile Selassie was Which you still, met. Y- yes. It, it is true there was some crisis the year I was in Ethiopia in 1959-60. And uh, after a couple of years in the United States, studied music. And what happened is uh, uh, there was an attempt uh, on an attempt to overthrow the emperor mm. by a group of more or less left-oriented Ethiopians who had studied in America and have come back. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a palace coup. Uh, maybe you heard about it. And I happened just by sheer chance uh, in a place called Aratkilo, which is between the two palaces, the old Emper- imperial palace and, and the new imperial palace. And uh, so I saw all the shooting and all the f- bombs and the firings for two days. Uh, so uh, that was a tense year. And it was a failed coup. It was a failed coup. And after the failed coup in 1969, the emperor was back in his stable, posi- stable position. He is the, the legendary king. leader he of Ethiopia. He is the legendary leader of Ethiopia, definitely. So from 1961... To about 1973, there was very little suspicion that uh, there will be an attempt to overthrow Ethiopia by a socialist communist regime. But there was still conflict going on during those years? No. No. Uh, 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 your question is very good. There was no conflict within Ethiopia. But what happened is uh, the state of Eritrea, uh, which used to be historically part of Ethiopia, uh, was uh, seized to the Italians in the 19th century. Uh, I don't want to get into the details. And uh, the Italians actually made some agreement with Emperor Menelik of Ethiopia. And after that, they kind of uh, cut, cut off that part of Ethiopia and ruled it as an Italian colony. Then in, 19, uh, in 1898, uh, the Italians actually also wanted to conquer Ethiopia and uh, colonize it, but they failed. Uh, Ethiopians are very proud of that history, that in 19, it was in fact a big shock in Europe that a European power could be defeated by an African power. This was uh, when exactly? In 1898. Ah, in 1898. 1896, sorry. Turn of the century. And uh, then um, what happened is, after that, uh, of course, uh, the Emperor Menelik uh, seized, uh, died, and uh, his daughter became the queen of Ethiopia, Queen Emperor Said II, Zauditu. And after her, Emperor Haile Selassie came into power in 1923. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, actually, European schedule, European time is 1930. The Ethiopian calendar is different, so I, I, if I give different calendars, it, it might be very confusing. Yeah. So, um, uh, basically, uh, Ethiopia has been more or less a stable country, a stable nation. However, apropos your question, to answer your question, then what happened is, in 1945, uh, when the, Ita- I mean, uh, the Italians uh, invaded Ethiopia in 1936-41, uh, mm-hmm. and when the Italians left, um, the, the Italians were kicked out of uh, Eritrea. And what uh, Eritrea, of course, the, the part that I said was historically Ethiopian, but then has been made into a new state by the Italians. Um, and then the Italians were kicked out, and the British came to Eritrea, and they, uh, it was like a protectorate. Mm-hmm. However, the emperor appealed to the United Nations, and there was a United Nations vote, 
uh, which uh, uh, decided to federate Eritrea to Ethiopia. And then, after 10 years, uh, the emperor made a big mistake. Mm-hmm. Instead of allowing the people of Eritrea to decide whether they wanted to continue as a federation or unite with Ethiopia, he simply, uh, I'm sorry to say this, I'm not a politician, but this is what I've read, and that he simply uh, 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 <coughs> railroaded this through the parliament. And the parliament of Eritrea decided to um, uh, unite Eritrea with Ethiopia. I see. That caused a big problem. That, so beginning in 1961, 60, if I remember my days correctly, now in the European calendar, uh, they, there was a liberation movement called Eritrean Liberation Movement. Uh-huh. So throughout the 60s, although Ethiopia was still a very quiet, stable country, in the north, uh, there was a lot of uh, strife. strife and co- conflict, which eventually... <coughs> grew in in size and in power after the emperor was overthrown. So apropos your question, um, it's an ambivalent situation. In the 60s, Ethiopia was still a very stable, strong country, but at the same time, there was this particular um, underground uh, movement um, that uh, was causing a major uh, problem for the emperor Mm -hmm. uh, and and for, for the country. So you're coming to America late of late 50s, early 60s, and um, it's very turbulent times in America when you arrive. And I wonder, uh, do you remember um, racism when you when you come to America? What was the fir- your first encounter mm. with racism? Oh, th- uh, thank you very much. Yes, not only do I remember. In fact, we even ourselves experienced it um, in 1959. We formed Ethiopian Student Association in North America. And uh, I was appointed to be the president of this organization. And then in the summer of that uh, year, I think summer of 1960, we organized uh, a very lovely Ethiopian exhibit. In those days, there were no Ethiopian restaurants, nothing, nothing. So, but we agreed to have an exhibit of Ethiopian um, culture and uh, music, dance, and all kinds of things at a university called Howard University. Not Harvard, Howard University in Washington. It's an African-American university. After the end of that conference, a group of us Ethiopians, uh, maybe about seven of us, were driving back to Boston. And when we, uh, after we left Washington, maybe after an hour or so, we stopped at a coffee shop. And I remember uh, they were not serving us coffee. It's in Maryland, someplace in Maryland. And my friends started saying to the waitress, where is our coffee? She said, we're busy. And we said, wait a minute. There was, these other people just came after us. And how come you know, we're not being served? So we asked her to call the manager. And the manager came and we said, look, we've been sitting here for 15 minutes and they are serving people all around us. He said, well, we are too busy. So we understood at that time Hmm. that uh, they don't serve Africans in that coffee shop. 
And this is in Maryland, which in a lot Maryland. of people have this kind of idea that, of course, <coughs> racism was much worse in the South, but it wasn't non-existent in the North. Oh, it well, this is a personal experience I have. Yeah. And then, my, you know, Ethiopians are very courageous people and, and, and very proud. And uh, we, we don't, we, we, in fact, to a certain extent, uh, don't consider white people equal to us, <laughs> historically, when I grew up. <laughs> so some of the Ethiopians... Rightfully so. <laughs> and they almost wanted to get into a fight. <laughs> with the manager and then I'm a peacemaker always even from my elementary school days so I pulled out of my and I was the president of the organization anyway I pulled my friends out so this is my uh, real experience the second experience I have is uh, I think somewhere about mid-60s an Ethiopian fellow called Naik Zigabramedhin came to MIT to study architecture and he called me and wanted me to help him to find an apartment. And so, uh, because I was already uh, at Harvard and I knew the place, uh, the town, Cambridge. So I looked through a list and we called this guy who said, yes, he has an apartment. He didn't know that we were Africans, of course. So when we got there, he was he kind of blushed, but he couldn't say there's no apartment. So after we went back, uh, uh, we, we decided we'll call him and say, we'll come and give a deposit. He said, oh no, somebody just took the apartment. And, um, and I'm always m morally courageous. So I said, mister, whoever you are, uh, how could you do such a thing? You told us it's an apartment. We just came. Within half an hour, we called you. And well, somebody else came. I said, you are lying. I said, and then I, I kind of put him to test. I said, what's your religion? I, I, of course, I'm Jewish myself. I said, he said, I'm a Christian. I said, oh, does your Christian religion teach you to discriminate against people and hate them? No, 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 no. I said, how could, because what you're doing, I'm suspicious, is based on discrimination. I said, and then I said, does your religion teach you to love uh, your neighbor? And he listens to me. I said, and does your religion not teach you, and I know enough about, uh, you know, the New Testament also, does your religion not teach you, you go to hell if you do things? And, uh, um, and he almost he listened to me and said, Come and take the apartment. <laughs> so course, he, he did in the uh, end? Uh, he, he said that. Yeah, because I, I quietly <laughs> challenged him by using, I, I'm a student of religion, so I know how to talk to these people. And then what happened is, uh, my friend, of course, said, no, I don't want this apartment. So this is another experience I have. But I must say, overall, however, the worst experience of racism I noticed is the hidden racism. The, the, the hidden racism. What's a hidden racism? Uh, when I came to Harvard, there was not a single course on African culture, African language, ancient African history. There were a couple of anthropology courses where Africans are studied as subjects for research by some anthropologists. And then there was one course about politics, African politics, uh, primarily to teach about how Europe uh, France, England had ruled in Africa. But there's nothing about African culture, African religion, African language. This was a kind of hidden racism. And that was intentional. <clears throat> well, it's, it's not, let me put it this way. If you look at the history of American universities, there was certainly deep racism. Calhoun at Yale University said, if you can find a man, an African person, who can read Greek and Latin and analyze his grammar, I will consider Africans human. 
Can you imagine this? Uh, they were professors who were measuring, uh, it was called anthropometry, the heads of black people and white people and, uh, uh, and mixed people, trying to say this is the intelligence of that, not the intelligence. It, it's, it's very shocking. And some of those people were in universities. Uh, at Harvard, at, at Princeton, at, at uh, there was a pioneer fund at uh, Princeton. How many African American professors were there in Harvard when you arrived? Zero. <laughs> <laughs> how many How many African American students? Ah, that's a good question it's too. Amazing. Because today there are a lot of. In I think when I came there were maybe about a dozen in the early sixties, and then by the mid sixties there were maybe about a couple dozen. And I became friendly with them. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, they formed an organization called African and Afro-American Students Association. Could you believe it? The university said, we do not allow uh, groups based on race. And they refused to give them a permit to form this organization. Fortunately, the people at Hillel House, and, and the Jews, Jewish students were always friendly, more friendly than the others. And, and, um, and the Jewish students and the rabbis said, well, wait a minute, we have a Hillel organization here, we have a Jewish student organization, mm -hmm. what is the difference if they... So it, they shamed the university to allow the official formation of the African and African-American Student Association at Harvard University. That was in the early 60s. Uh, and I remember I was very friendly with the head of it. And um, in fact, uh, in the mid-60s, again, I, I told you I was president of the Ethiopian Students Association. Then about 1962, I became chairman of the Ethiopian Literacy Campaign. Uh, we were raising money, and the African-American students on campus helped me raise money for education in Ethiopia. Uh, and then by the late 60s, the African and African-American students, uh, th by that time, maybe they were about uh, 80, 90. The, the numbers were, had increased. And there was uh, the, the killing of Martin Luther King, and there was a big student demonstration, uh, including some African-American and Jewish students on memorial steps, uh, steps of memorial church. And that really was like... Uh, a wave. A thunder. Oh, you, you had the privilege of meeting uh, Martin Luther King. Um, could you tell us about that? When was it and in what context? Thank you very much, yes. Um, when I was a student at Harvard, uh, I always, of course, I, I had some scholarship. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. Then one day I got a call around 1963, I think, that the um, American Athletic Association had invited Abebe Bikila, the famous Ethiopian runner, the one who ran in Rome barefoot and won, he became the first African to, you know about Abebe Bikila? Mm-hmm. My God, mm -hmm. he's, nope. oh, he's the most famous uh, marathon, even today. I barely know. He ran the marathon he, barefoot. Barefoot in Rome. Wow. And after the Italian war, running barefoot and winning the marathon was like Ethiopia conquering Italy. <laughs> okay. So the American Athletic Association had invited Abebe Bikila and the other guy who also had won marathon in Mexico to come to America. There was a medical doctor at Harvard Medical School who was interested about how your kidney functions when you run so fast. And so 
uh, he, he had a house, and um, uh, the American Athletic Association was looking for a place, and he said, uh, well, I can provide them a house. But they didn't know the Ethiopian language. So they hired me as their escort interpreter. So I traveled with them for two months. One time when we were at the Hilton Hotel, I think it's in New York. I, I, you know, I, I know it was a Hilton Hotel. Whether it was New York in Hilton, I think in New York, uh, we were there in the lounge, and uh, Martin Luther King was standing with some of his uh, um, entourage. And, they, and so one of them came to us, uh, w w who knew about a baby killer, that he was a, a very famous uh, marathon runner. He said, oh, come, come, I'll introduce you to Martin Luther King. So we went and... Uh, you, you did the interpretation. Uh, yes, of course. Uh, yes, of course. And then we even sat down and had tea. Uh, with Martin wow. Luther King. So uh, that is uh, my first meeting him. And what was your impression? How, how does it, I mean, if well, you could describe the man. Well, my impression, of course, was uh, uh, anyone who's fighting for <coughs> justice, uh, I, I have to respect and admire. And uh, he, he was very friendly because uh, he also was happy to see a famous African runner who had uh, conquered Rome by running barefoot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Would you say he's an inspiration to you or influenced you, your career? Well, of course, I only met him uh, that one day. Yes, and we spent about philosophy. half an hour together. Uh, well, his philosophy was, um, of course, uh, it's not just a philosophy of Martin Luther King, but the philosophy of civil rights, of course, influenced us. Uh, as a matter of fact, even before I met Martin Luther King, uh, there was an organization on campus called SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And there were a lot of uh, Jewish students in that and others, uh, white students. And uh, they, they were campaigning against uh, racism and against discrimination. And um, there were a couple of them, but SNCC is a very important one. It was Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And I became a member of one of those. And uh, so we, we already have been very active on campus, uh, trying to uh, join, uh, you know, uh, I'm not a big demonstration person, but participate in meetings and so on and so forth. So this happened in the early 60s, in fact, before I even met uh, King. And throughout the 60s, the SNCC, it was called, and then there were other student organizations on other campuses, but the one I was involved with was SNCC. Then, moreover, after I uh, became a member of the, this African and African-American Students Association, we were, of course, all very, uh, very concerned about discrimination. But being on a university campus, our major concern at that time is the intellectual discrimination, the educational discrimination, the lack of respect for the study of African peoples. So I became very involved with that. And by uh, late uh, in 19, uh, Martin Luther King was killed in 68. Is that 68. Right? Yeah. Uh, when he was killed, by the way, that day I was in Washington. Uh, I was in Washington, D.C. And um, then when I came back, there was a big demonstration on the steps of uh, Memorial Hall, maybe mm -hmm. I refer to it. Uh, and uh, then uh, the university itself was shamed that, that uh, there was not very much African studies. And um, so they set up a committee called African and African-American Studies uh, Committee. There was a man in the Department of Economics who made a statement, uh, I think his name was Henry Rozovsky, um, that we dance to black African music, we sing African music, but we have no place for the study of African peoples. So the dean decided to set up a committee 
And this committee included two of the students from our organization of African and African-American Students Association. Um, and I think one was called Ernie, the other was Octavia, if I don't remember, you know, <laughs> many years ago. Uh, and then they uh, came up with uh, a decision to set up two committees at Harvard. One was for African Studies Committee, the other was African-American Studies Committee. Uh, right at the beginning, the faculty voted to accept this, but right at the very beginning, the black students on campus uh, rebelled. They didn't want such a thing. They wanted a department. Now, the difference is a committee it really has no resources. It just depends on other departments. Yeah. But a department has its own, you know. It's the real thing. It's the real thing. So then in the... Uh, uh, the, then the, the, uh, our, the students have to set up uh, different committees to look into what we need to study. And there was one about um, African-American uh, group, and I was in the African studies group with a, a woman called Connie Hilliard, and I think with Ernie Wilson, if I'm not mistaken. We were subcommittee for the African-American and African students to, to look into how, what we wanted from the university, not what they were offering. So then it just happened in the late, uh, in, in, in the spring of 1969, uh, there was a huge demonstration on Harvard campus against the Vietnam War. Uh, probably you people don't remember that, but uh, there was an organization called SDS, the Student for Democratic Society, and then there were other groups, uh, but um, it was a huge, uh, and some of those students went into University Hall at Harvard and kicked out the deans. It was unbelievable. <laughs> it was, you know, there's something unheard of in the sacrosanct university. Like physically, they <laughs> physically they, took they, them they, they threw them out and uh, they, they they occupied university. It was Harvard Hall. The, Harvard the first Hall. Occupy movement. You must have <laughs> heard, of, you must have heard about it, no? <laughs> Haven't you heard about it? No, I no. didn't. Oh, I mean, I know that I know there was Why? many demonstrations around Vietnam. But oh yeah, not oh, we should yeah. do this thing. Oh yeah, huh? we should do this. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, university <laughs> was uh, shocked, of course, the big shock. All the deans were kicked out, <laughs> and the st students occupied it for a day. And uh, it was a very sad situation because then the university decided to call the police, and there mm -hmm. was a beating of people, bloodying them, and so on and so forth. It became a big, ma major international I, I, conference. And then the university decided to hold a, a, com uh, a faculty meeting. Uh, to see what to do about the student demands. And then one of the student demands parallel to this was the black students' demand. The black students were also demonstrating at the faculty was meeting in the summer. And they had five demands. Uh, more black students, bl black faculty, Department of African People, and a center for research, and then kind of a social center, about five demands. And then the faculty met, and of course, in this very tense situation, there was a very big argument in the faculty. The first time, actually, Harvard University faculty meeting was on the air. It was, it was on the air, and everybody heard it. By the way, many of them had European accents, so people said, oh, what is that? I mean, they were people who were born in Poland, Germany, France, and so on, I mean, because Harvard professors from all over the place. Then they voted to establish, they, 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 they voted to throw out the original recommendation of the Razovsky Committee to have two separate committees, but to start, create a department of African and African-American studies. And they so decided to put been, you. 
Yeah, yeah they decided to put you as And the, then, of course, uh, I was just finishing my doctorate that spring. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, Timing is everything. Timing is everything. <laughs> and they couldn't find people who knew anything. And I had done my doctorate on classical Ethiopic literature and its relation to Hebrew literature and so on. And uh, so as I was about to leave and go back to Ethiopia, I got a call from the chairman of the new committee saying, you know, we would like to hire you to teach in this department. And then I was in those days very committed to my country of Ethiopia. I said, no, I'm going back to <laughs> Ethiopia. So one of my other teachers called me and said, you know, we need you. You need to make a contribution. You can always go back to Ethiopia. And then I rethought and then I agreed. Then I got a letter saying, this is the first appointment we're making in the new Department of African-American Studies. So by sheer chance, I became the first person they ever hired to teach in this new department. But were you also the first African professor in Harvard? Yes, in, in some ways, yes. Uh, of course, there were, there were no African professors there. Like Africa, were there, but the first black professor? Well... Uh, Because you said there were zero... <laughs> Uh, they, 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 no, they, when you came uh, in the 60s they were zero yeah. by but, now what but, year are we in 69 now 69 by 69 there, there was one guy who was like assistant professor and uh, that's it and I heard there was one person maybe at the medical school at the medical I'm looking school for, yeah, yeah because yeah, you're, so, you're looking for a scoop from the yeah, 60s yeah I want a scoop <laughs> yeah the African American guy in the uh, was in politics and the other guy was in uh, in the medical school so How do you go from being the first uh, professor for African studies in, in the United States and Harvard, um, and, and you have the, your position there? How do you go from there to establishing a peace committee for solving the conflict in the Horn of Africa? Where, how, how did you get from there to there? <laughs> okay, thank you. That's a segue. Thank you very much. First of all, let me emphasize one thing, that... Uh, uh, make a distinction between whether Harvard had uh, other black professors or not is uh. one thing. But whether they ever had a department, that's another thing. Right. This was the first department ever. Yes. 1969. And I was the first person they hired. Yes. And I ended up teaching almost 50% of the students. In fact, I don't know if you know, there is a prize. Uh, did you see in the Harvard website? The yes, prize? there is a prize yeah. on the professor's name yes. today in it's Harvard. Called, it's called the Ephraim Isaac Prize for Excellence in African Studies. And it says, I taught 50% of the students. I was the most popular professor. And so in honor of the fact that I did that, they established this prize. Amazing. Uh, yes. Then... By the late 70s, uh, they were kind of beginning to be very shaky about the department because things quieted down. There were no more demonstrations. And, and so, in fact, I ended up uh, taking the president of Harvard to court, but that's um, another story. Um, then uh, I was invited to the Hebrew University as a visiting professor. So I was here 77-78. And then... Uh, when I came back, I was invited to the Institute for Advanced Study, which is a very, very famous place in Princeton. It's not part of the university. It's uh, like the, Einstein founded it um, for a year, but they had historians and others. And uh, then at that time, I started uh, becoming more involved. Uh, by this time, I was uh, 
lecturing at Princeton for a while. And then uh, what happened is uh, uh, in the early 80s, in the late beginning, the late 70s, there was a huge uprising in Ethiopia. There was a revolution <coughs> to answer your question. And there was a conflagration. And, were, and, and the socialist communist regime was killing young people all over the place. It was a horrible, horrible period in Ethiopian history. And that was for the first time when I didn't go back to Ethiopia. From, 19, from the time I came to Harvard until 1974, I went almost once or twice. Uh, also, after I was the president of the Ethiopian Student Association, I formed an organization called Committee for Ethiopian Literacy. And we were teaching people all over the place. You can see this button I'm wearing. Yes, it's I wanted to Itamaru ask you about it. Which means uh, those who are educated should educate others. And so I was very involved with Ethiopia in the 60s, even as a student, with the literacy campaign. And I'm very proud that two and a half million people became educated until 1972, when the Derg took it over. Then uh, I was just dumbfounded about what was happening in that beautiful country with the fighting, with the killing from 1977, let's say it started 74, actually 75, until the mid-80s. Then there was a famine in Ethiopia. And then some of my friends started calling me. Where are people like you who had been really doing you know, good work for Ethiopia, like the literacy campaign? You were also involved in, uh, you know, um, uh, in, in, in organizing Ethiopian student movement and so on. Um, there are a few others. You know, in Ethiopian tradition, elders are respected. So they called me as an elder. Uh, and they said, why are you people you know, not doing anything? Because our country, there is famine, there is a lot of death and destruction, and the war is, is killing many, many more people. Of course, my response is, well, you know, uh, I became very, very disappointed with what happened in the last 15 years because of the fact that uh, many people whom I knew personally, young people who became socialist communists, have decided to... Uh, run the country, you know, the way they uh, wanted and had caused all this death and destruction. But I couldn't say no. So there was a meeting in, in Canada to which I was invited. And at that meeting, they brought together all the conflicting parties, uh, except maybe the government of Ethiopia. And at that meeting, they uh, wanted to elect three people who could uh, then try to contact all the conflicting parties plus the government to bring them together. And I happened to be chosen to be one of the three. Um, How come? Was there any particular reason? Or well, was... well I, I told you because Look at I, him. I was president of the... I'll make peace with anyone <laughs> if he's the negotiator. Yeah, thank you. I was president of the Ethiopian Student Association. Many people knew me. I was chairman of the literacy campaign. People knew me. And people knew me from high school days that I'm a peacemaker. Uh, in fact, uh, last uh, two years ago, I was giving a lecture at the University of Minnesota. Uh, I was invited uh, by the Ethiopian Student Movement, and I was sitting on the front row. And um, this guy, he comes and sits next to me and says, hello, Ephraim. And I say, Ephraim. Uh, and I say, hello. So, so, and I said to him, he said, hello, too, like French, too. 
you like uh. and i said hello vu i said to him vu they said a respectful way of the other uh-huh, yeah. how could you do that we were in high school together weren't we uh, so i could and I, of course i remember his face and i said well you know even in high school i used to say vu there is one thing i never forgot about you uh, you know i know you're working for ethiopian peace now but people think that you just started yesterday when in high school one day when grade 11 one student got a very bad grade from his teacher and he jumped and, he, and Mr. King was his name, a Canadian teacher, and he hit him on his eyeglasses and his eyeglasses flew. One person was breaking the eyeglass and, and you went and knelt down and asked God for peace. And I said, I don't remember this. He said, you know, when people <laughs> do bad like things, me. they remember. <laughs> he said, when people do bad things, they remember. When people do good things, uh, they, they, they probably sometimes forget. In, in other words, I have always been, even in elementary school, I used to try to stop people from fighting with each other. So I've always believed in peace. Moreover, when I, the year uh, I was born, uh, the Italians invaded Ethiopia. And when they left, I was three or f- four years. And I remember the bombing and the death and the destruction. In fact, a kid I played with was killed. So all of that had gone into my bones, into my, my nerves. And I hated fighting guns and warfare. So when I went there, I mean, people knew, you know, that. Uh, so they asked me to be one of the three. In fact, the irony is, when we started going to all these, there were political parties like the uh, EPRP, Ethiopian People's Revolution Movement, Meison, uh, EDU, Ethiopian Democratic Union, Oromo Liberation, for, for T- T- TPLF, all these, about a dozen of these organizations. And, and they said they will not accept a third person, but they will accept me and the other guy. And some of them, in fact, they, they will only accept me. I was very flabbergasted <laughs> and flattered also. <laughs> anyway, uh, when I realized if uh, all these different people are raising questions about the appointment of uh, the three of us, uh, they all said they will accept me, which was very humbling. I decided to make a list of 20 people and send it to all these political party groups, the government, uh, Eritrean Liberation Front, uh, Ethiopian Democratic Union, Oromo Liberation Front, Ogaden Liberation Front. I sent all these 20 lists and said, could you please check whom you accept and whom you don't accept? That was a very clever move, by the way, because that way, then when I know all of these people accept this one person and, and not this other, so it came down to about 12 people that everybody accepted. So this was formed in 1989. It's called the Peace and Development, well, Ad, Ad Hoc Peace Committee. It's called P- Ad Hoc Peace Committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is how I got involved, and thanks God, we started doing bilateral negotiation in Washington, D.C. Between all the factions within Ethiopia and the Eritrean, and who else? Yes. Uh, of, uh, no, as I mentioned, you know, the, the major forces were uh, the DERG, the government itself, mm-hmm. the Eritrean Liberation Front, and the EPRDF. I see. which was also with TBLF. But now you just completed an front. a successful negotiation between Ethiopia and Eritrea. Just now it happened, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And this is, of course, it has been, uh, 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 well, it's a long story. Yes. But anyway, well, we at, that, at that time, 
what happened is then we got i had a professor of mine from sweden was a became archbishop of sweden and i called him and i said we have this committee now we need support and he was very nice christer stendhal and he decided to put me in touch with an organization in sweden called life and peace institute and life and peace institute sent two people and so my group of about a dozen people ethiopians and then with the help of the swedish movement we decided to have uh, um, this movement, and then we started a negotiation. And the end result is in 1991, uh, while we were trying to organize a meeting in Switzerland to solve this problem, the US State Department jumped into the situation and had a meeting in London. But the meeting in London didn't uh, solve uh, any problem. But the war ended, and so they just helped to say the war ended now. So the final formation of a new constitutionally uh, transitional government took place in Addis Ababa. And I went with that group. We, in fact, had raised money from Sweden and Norway. We paid money for the meeting in Addis Ababa in 1991 that formed, uh, that at which time the a new government under Malas Zenawi was uh, formed uh, as a transitional government. So I'm very pleased to say I was an observer. I also gave a lecture at the end, uh, like a peace, peace message. So this is, I've been very involved since that time. In fact, uh, I will add, I said to uh, the, the President Isaias at the time, uh, and Amales and, and uh, the Oromo Liberation Front that we've, we're done now. They said, no, you're not done. You have to, because there is, now it's a beginning, so we need to strengthen peace. So we agreed to change Ad Hoc Peace Committee to Peace and Development Committee. Mm -hmm. And this Peace and Development Committee has now become Peace and Development Center. 30 years, we just celebrated 30 years last week. And over the years, we've been negotiating with the government the release of prisoners, uh, peace between Ethiopia and Eritrea, peace between which is now different happening. groups, which is now happening. And uh, so uh, I'm very grateful to the Almighty, Hashem, <laughs> for uh, the, uh, the, 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 the love and friendship our people have shown us on all sides and uh, the respect they have given to us. Uh, we are now called the National Elders of Ethiopia, and the idea of these National Elders is now being picked up by the UN, the US government is now being called Second Track Diplomacy. I think in 1989, when we started this idea of uh, eldership, and, um, not many people really w were doing this or were interested. So I am very pleased that we were almost uh, first ones to start it in modern times. I have to ask you, Professor, what's your number one tip for the peacemaker? Oh, I have something called the Ten Commandments okay. of peacemaking number. You asked for one, you got ten. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I remember all of them. You have to be a humble person. Okay. You have to be a respectful person. Okay. You have to be a patient person. Patient means uh, you, you have to, yeah. Uh, you have to be a person who uh, loves people. Uh, well, my Ten Commandments are ten. I don't go <laughs> through all of them for you now. The bottom line is you have to really, as I said, uh, uh, a person who uh, has experience, um, who respects other people, uh, and the work you do is not for 
self glory but for, to help people in fact the, maybe in some ways the big mistake my organization did was in our constitution it says we don't speak to the media <laughs> although occasionally the media got hold of our story because we were not looking for publicity Fame. Fame, fame, and it, in a way, it, it ironically backfired on us because many little organizations that came after us were always in the media and they're talking about what they do, right. but we're just quiet, doing our work very quietly. Yeah. And um, uh, recently, though, our board meeting uh, after 30 years said, you know, maybe we should talk to the media, and so we did talk to the media. <laughs> we're happy you decided to. Uh, <laughs> I, one to final allow question it. I yeah. have: yeah. Can you explain me for me what? What are you wearing and what is the medal oh okay <laughs> well I, I'm, 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 I'm dressed of course I, I don't give interviews naked <laughs> that would be that would add some spice if you're talking about talking to the media yeah that would definitely get the word out yeah, yeah. well uh, you know many years ago uh, I was here in Israel uh, as, as you all maybe know my, ma- my mother is Ethiopian my father is Yemenite many years ago there was a first conference of Yemenite Jewish studies at Binyanei Uma no it said no no in Jerusalem I forgot the name of the place and uh, were standing at, uh, uh, I, was, I was there, and uh, the, uh, some of the Yemenite scholars, uh, you know, loved me and respected me too. So they wanted me to stand together with a couple of very distinguished people at the door to receive uh, this uh, Shamir, is his name, the short prime minister of Yes, Israel, Shamir. Because he's coming in. So I'll stand at the door and receive him. So while I was standing there, the, some guy from Ma'ariv came and said, what is this? <laughs> and, and immediately I said, this is a, a Yemenite Jewish kova in, in honor of my father. Yes. And this is Ethiopian dress in honor of the, my mother and my motherland. And these are American shoes in honor of the country where I live. And inside me is a human heart. And that's it nice. picked up on my <laughs> So that's what it is. That's what the answer is. <laughs> and the medal? And the medal. Ah, the medal is, okay. Uh, we go back to the peace organization. Over the 30 years, Baruch Hashem, our organization has helped like in the freeing of important political leaders. I don't want to uh, give you a detail because uh, especially many important people who were in the parliament, appointed parliament, doctors, lawyers, very distinguished people. We, we've, we were at the head of, uh, um, I was chairman of a program that freed the woman who was the chairman of uh, the opposition political party. Uh, we, we helped a, a couple German terror, uh, Germans who were captured by terrorists to put them in touch with elders to free them. And then one of them also, there were two Swedish journalists like you guys, and uh, <laughs> and they uh, were with the Ogaden Liberation Front in Eastern Ethiopia. And uh, being young journalists and naive, uh, when they told them, oh, help us carry these guns, they were cal- carrying the guns for them, although they were journalists. So, and then the government of Ethiopia uh, hit them and arrested these uh, two Swedish uh, journalists. And, um, and of course, the Ethiopian government convicted them for... To, to, to prison for, I think, for a dozen years, but I'm not quite exact that for the number of years for, uh, uh, on the basis of they were terrorists. Uh, they, of course, they were not terrorists. They were journalists, unfortunately, but they were carrying the guns for these people. And, and, and I was, uh, thank you, again, involved in negotiating with the 
government and uh, Sweden and Ethiopian government in trying to uh, get them released after a couple of years uh, or a year and a half we got them released and so um, in a kind of uh, small gratitude the king of Sweden knighted me and I, uh, he knighted me as the order of the polar star <laughs> wow. so, uh, and it says on it it never sets <laughs> it, it is a in, in the Latin language, it says, uh, it says, Nescit Ocasu. Uh, Which means it never it, sets. It never sets. At the polar star. So this That's is, beautiful. Uh, Who needs the peace <laughs> Nobel Prize for peace when you have this? It's so nice. Okay. But you'll get that one too, one day, I'm sure. <laughs> Thank you. Right? I know some Ethiopians have nominated me for that, but that's okay. It will happen. I can feel it. So you're here. It's worth mentioning because uh, the Ono uh, College here in Israel is um, basically inaugurating a new department for uh, African studies, right? Yes. Thank you very much for asking me that question. I should have mentioned it right at the very beginning. I'm here in Israel this time. I've been to Israel many times, almost 70 times. Your parents Since 1960. Here, yeah, my parents, yes. yes. Since 1960, I've come here 72 times. But this time I came as an honorable guest for the uh, establishment of uh, the chair of uh, Ethiopian studies. In fact, that uh, gentleman who is sitting over there yes. <laughs> is carrying that chair now. <laughs> my dear, dear friend, <laughs> Rabbi Shalom Sharoni, is his name um, and uh, he, he was the instigator actually <laughs> who got me to come <laughs> he so was a trouble your fault <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um, at the uh, for the first time in, in Israel they've now established uh, it's, a, it's a shame that it's only now after yeah because for those who don't know in <laughs> yeah. israel there are uh, i don't know hundreds of thousands of ethiopian jews something like that well even more and, important than that and, ethiopian yeah. language ethiopian literature ethiopian religion ethiopian culture yeah. is so connected to judaism than any other country that, in africa for sure yeah, yeah. well no anywhere in, in, in the world yeah yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I sure quote, Quoted in my lecture, Ratgens, uh, who came to Ethiopia about a hundred years ago and said, uh, you know, I've traveled all over the world. I end up in Ethiopia and I think I'm back to ancient Israel. Mm -hmm. So establishing a chair of Ethiopian studies, a cathedral like this, is uh, really overdue, important. long overdue. And uh, I'm very happy that they create uh, Ono Academic College, you know, create Ono Academic College has decided to beat the other big universities in this effort. And um, more importantly, really, is the person they chose to, to be in charge of, of this, who is my dear friend. Uh, he is very knowledgeable. And they're honoring uh, uh, you also in, in, in this department, right? Or uh, Well, I, I don't really need honors. I have so many honors. <laughs> if you come to my house, you will see a lot of plaques. <laughs> but in any case, uh, uh, he is really a very knowledgeable Ethiopian. Mm -hmm. He speaks well. Mm -hmm. He lectures well. Uh, he's uh, very good both at uh, Ethiopian, understanding Ethiopian culture and religion. And um, I'm very proud of him. I'm very proud of him. <laughs> and uh, so he's now going to be the head of the, uh, the cathedral. Making history uh, in Israel. Make, making history in Israel. May, may the Almighty bless him. Amen. And Amen. Uh, make him successful. 
uh, and, and YouTube. Uh, <laughs> we and wish YouTube. the both of you the best of luck. Thank yes. you very much. Um, <laughs> so, so thank you first of all so much for joining us. You've been you're inspiring. Your aspiration to peace and your humility and uh, just everything about you is very inspiring. Thank you so much. Just good vibes. Yeah, good vibes. We hope the <laughs> listeners got a little bit from the good vibes. Thank you. Thank I'm you. Sure. So, thank you so very much. I appreciate uh, your questions. You both, I, two two good Jewish boys. Two, two nice Jewish boys. We'll, we think we're good too, but, yeah. <laughs> but we're, we're mainly nice. <laughs> no, you, you, I mean, I can, I can always tell good people on their face. So <laughs> Thank you. And, in two minutes, and uh, you sound like uh, very nice people. Thank you so much. Thank so, you, but I don't know if I can, I can trust you because you said before that you like people naturally. So <laughs> I don't know if you're the best judge of our, of our goodness. <laughs> <laughs> no, no yeah, but really, thank you very I, I much. Appreciate so before friend. we go... By the way, I should yes. add though one... One, yes. one word. Um, I, uh, the, some, uh, many people don't know that uh, one of the people who really was behind the Aliyah of Ethiopian Jews is uh, uh, Rasar Ovadia Hezi. Uh, Ovadia Hezi, in fact, I happen to be in the home of his daughter now, mm -hmm. who lives here. Rose, and who hosts her. Rose, yeah. Yes. And, um, uh, and, and he uh, single-handedly, really, was very jealous, for the, very envious for the Aliyah of Ethiopian Jews. He was the one who went to the chief rabbi and made him sign the statement to welcome Ethiopian Jews to Israel. And um, he educated a lot of Israelis. He really spearheaded the coming of Ethiopian Jews. So if he were alive today, he would be very, very happy to see Kriyat Ono establishing a chair in Ethiopia. Hopefully more will follow. Ethiopia, Ethiopia and as we understood, there yeah. was many meetings and, and, and talks here, right here behind us in this, yes, in this yes. very yes. room. In Absolutely. This room. And I think his daughter, she's in the kitchen. No, here uh, she uh, is Rose? there. Right, right there. here. Oh, oh, she, oh, and a great husband. <laughs> but, <laughs> they're hosting us. Yes, they've and been hosting, hosting me too. They've yeah. been very kind and generous. You know, she's now establishing a... What, what's it called? Um, Archeon. The archives. And archives uh, on the life of uh, Razar of Adiahezi. Razar of Adiahezi, of course, was like my father, my brother. I don't know. My parents lived with him for two years. And wow. uh, we're like family. And uh, really, he was an amazing person, to tell you the truth, if you had met him. He, in the early days, he was like a re recruiter of the Israeli army, mm -hmm. going back to the time of Ben-Gurion. And um, he had big hat. Maybe sh you can sh sh you can get the sh show the pictures later. And I remember when I fe first met him in a synagogue in Ethiopia, <laughs> he was singing the Haftorah, <laughs> and it was very impressive. And uh, and then um, being a person who is very open-minded. Uh, he uh, insisted that my parents come to Israel and they lived with him for two years. And so my connection to Israel is very strong. I have some distant relatives here on every side. Hebrew. Uh, well, I, 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 I speak opinion. biblical Hebrew. I never took a course in modern Hebrew. Never. Not even one. But I, I've studied, I, I read the Torah a little bit. My father, you know, my father knew the, much of the Torah and told him by heart. And also Proverbs, he knew by heart. So he used to be a silversmith. And he used to sit there and, you know, chant, you know. As he's eating. I mean, I remember the whole day he's, he's, he's hammering and he's chanting, he's doing <laughs> these things. And, and, and from the Torah. So that influenced me. And uh, we're, we were talking about that before, how, how he knew all, so much of it by heart. It's incredible that yeah. back then 
you know you had all this and today you have everything right here yeah. so you don't need to exactly. know anything by heart exactly exactly but that's yeah. incredible well he he was like that so uh, i'm very pleased i'm very happy that i'm connected to all of these people who have of course i myself was also very involved as a speaker for uh, operation moses especially i sp sp we didn't talk about that you didn't ask me uh, <laughs> but, but we, we wish <laughs> yeah we wish we had the time yeah. to talk yeah. about it all yeah. because yeah. you've obviously you've yeah. had a fascinating yeah. life i i spearheaded the $60,000 fundraising uh, recruited by the Jewish uh, United to Jewish Appeal. To Jews to uh, yeah, Israel. The, the early Operation wow. Moses. Yeah. Operation I was in, Moses. involved. It, it was interesting, you know, the connection. On the one hand, I was here with Rathar Ovadia Hazy talking about uh, bringing Aliyah and he even took me once to the chief rabbi. He took me to, uh, he, he no, he didn't take me there. He invited Rabbi Ovadia Hazy, uh, Ovadia uh, uh, Yosef. Avada Yosef to a Yemenite synagogue uh -huh. uh, on Rakhov Amos in Geula. And one after Mincha, actually, he came in for Mincha. And uh, so, and I didn't know that uh, Razarov Adhezi <laughs> was <laughs> politicking to get me to talk to him. Working behind the scenes. <laughs> Working behind the scenes, yeah. So, and then um, uh, I, uh, you know, I, I must say really uh, that this is one person that should be honored in Israel for the Aliyah of Ethiopian Jews. I'm sure most Ethiopian Jews will, will, will agree with me for the great work he did. And I'm very happy to be connected to the land of Israel through my own family, through the Hezi family. We're and, also very and happy to now have the you Shalom, here. Sharon family. <laughs> okay, Professor, we have to wrap things up. So before we go, we have a collaboration with the Jewish Journal. David Suisa, I saw a video. You're sang in his home. <laughs> yes, he asked me to sing in Hebrew, yes. and I sang in Hebrew. So I, I sang the. He's, uh, he, he's the um, editor of the Jewish Journal. Oh yeah, yeah. And you should go to JewishJournal.com and check out it. Has amazing uh, articles, podcasts. He has a podcast, so go guys and check them out at jewishjournal.com. Jewishjournal.com. In fact, he wanted me to write an article for him because after I chanted <laughs> for him from Isaiah, he liked my chant, which he put on the internet. Is that uh -huh, right? Yes. He, he wanted me to write an article about my views about the prophets and the the, the centrality of the prophets in my religion. Yes. You know, um, and uh, I started writing it, but uh, you know, right now. I have been very, very busy. I have three children. I started writing the article, but the problem is uh, you can't do everything. My life, I'm always up in the air, running around, giving yes. lectures, uh, doing this peace. And right now, my whole life is almost 75% doing peace in Ethiopia. And uh, I founded an institute of Semitic studies, uh, an institute of, um, uh, yes, something, and doing publishing. We publish a journal. We publish books. So so you can uh, tell you can tell David Suiza that this is is kind of like your article because uh -huh. we do we, we work you with the jewish him? journal yeah this the podcast is is in collaboration with the really? jewish journal his, which he's, you know, his ex-wife or wife uh, yeah. lives in uh, uh up in the north what's the town in the north uh, the, the in the galilee the, the, the kabbalah town where the, the kabbalah uh, the tzvat, but, yeah. Tzvat, yeah i think anyway we have to wrap things so, up so so also we have uh we do this on our free time so we uh obviously will uh, we uh if you guys want to throw a few schmeckles our way guys so we will be happy to take it uh slash donate and before we go if you can give us a little taste from that chant you gave at david's house <laughs> just a little taste is it possible well, let me see what I what the, the chant is is from Isaiah. 
פגר זאב עם כמאס, ונאמר עם זדיר בוס, ועגל וכפיו אמריח לו, ונער קוטון נוהג בו. ופרע ודוב תרענו, יחדו ירבזו ילדיה, ואריה כבוק יוקלטבה. ושעשו ינק על הור פותן, מר צפוני, ג'מול הודו יודו. לא יורעו ולא ישחיתו בכל הר גודשי, כי מולעות דעת הדושן. Thank you so much, Professor. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.